Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Few moments in American history have held the tension of the Vietnam War, especially in the early 1970s. Our nation was then fundamentally divided between young people and their parents who saw no reason for the United States to be involved in Vietnam and President Richard Nixon's silent majority, causing a rupture particularly connected to the still escalating Vietnam War. The Pentagon Papers, which were released by Daniel Ellsberg, our guest in this archive edition of Radio Curious, were published on the front page of the New York Times in June 1971. They focused national attention on the United States foreign policy and our rights as individual citizens to freedom of the press. Criminal charges were brought against Daniel Ellsberg in the United States District Court in Los Angeles, California. They were later dismissed by the judge. When Daniel Ellsberg and I visited by phone in March 1997, I asked him to begin by placing the Pentagon Papers in the context of the time. what some of those treaties were and what some of the specific lies were? Well, for example, the United States had committed itself uh, not to interfere with by violence, not to uh, overturn the understandings in the Geneva Accords of 1954, which called for elections throughout Vietnam for a government of a unified Vietnam. It was that agreement that had led the Viet men who were fighting the French colonialists to agree to a ceasefire, an armistice in effect, for two years while they awaited those elections, which they expected to win. Well, Eisenhower expected them to win, too. 
result of a, of a free election, as he said in his own memoirs. And therefore, the United States secretly set out to undermine those accords and to assure that uh, anyone who favored carrying out such elections in South Vietnam, where essentially a, a client government, a kind of puppet government, uh, under totally dependent on our support, was in power, uh, anyone who wanted to carry out the accords and prepare for those elections was repressed by our chosen ruler of Vietnam, President Ngo Dinh Diem, and uh, imprisoned, actually, tortured, many of them killed, many of them driven to emigrate back to North Vietnam. And this was a, a very clear violation of our uh, international commitments under the Treaty of Accords, which had fatal consequences, uh, basically, and led to the outbreak of resistance to Siam, supported that by the North, and uh, to our decision to involve ourselves in the footsteps of the French. So having, having uh, backed the, really pressed the French effort, uh, which we were paying uh, over 80% of the costs of the French attempt to reconquer their colonial possession uh, before World War II, uh, having made that our war in effect, we then took the place of the French, really, in the eyes of the Vietnamese and in, in reality, and fought uh, against a communist-led movement for independence and uh, revolution in Vietnam. It was not a, a fight we were ever likely to win, and we did not win. How were these lies suppressed and these uh, unauthorized actions of the United States in violation of the accords and the treaties, how were they suppressed? Well, simply by the, quote, normal workings of a security system, a secrecy system that had grown up during World War II in connection with the Manhattan Project, uh, you know, uh, patterns of secrecy that were familiar to military systems of all countries, including ours, were extended to civilians, scientists and others, intelligence agents during World War II, people working on electronics and on nuclear weapons. And in the Cold War, we persisted in a kind of wartime secrecy, which came to be primarily a secrecy system uh, directed against our own public and against Congress. Of course, there are secrets uh, that need to be kept and that are kept from foreign powers or from enemies. But in peacetime, even in Cold War, uh, so-called, those didn't. Uh, those were the lesser part, really, of, uh, of the billions of pages of documents that were stamped secret and kept out of political debate in this country to avoid controversy, to avoid opposition to the president's policies, to avoid finding any president out in lies or simply mistakes, errors, misjudgments that would hurt him politically. And uh, in short, you have a system that's for the convenience of the people in power, for their reputation, for their winning elections, that is uh, intended to subvert the democratic process. And the effect of that on foreign policy is that it isn't really regularly under our democratic control, on the one hand. And second, uh, not being under democratic control, very foolish, very criminal, really, policies can be carried out. Mad policies. Our, our, uh, our Vietnam policy had a very strong tinge of unreality that amounted to madness year after year after year, especially as the costs grew very high. Even in the early years, it could be predicted, it was predicted inside the government, that the eventual costs would be very high, and that was uh, 
costs, and by costs I don't mean just money, I mean deaths of Americans and many more times of Vietnamese. And uh, despite those predictions, it always seemed more convenient to the uh, president, Republican or Democrat, to avoid a failure, avoid an appearance of defeat before he faced the next election. He didn't want to go into that election charged with losing Vietnam in the way that Democrats were charged by the Republicans with having lost China. Dan, it was these policies that you disclosed when you published the Pentagon Papers. It was the... Uh, the history of... The uh, secret. It was the secret policies, the secret escalations, the secret threats. What, uh, what was it that... What was it that uh, finally moved you to decide to publish the Pentagon Papers? What was the straw that, that convinced it? It was not just a, a kind of academic desire to set the record straight. Uh, I, my job was in the government. I'd worked with classified material for years. I had been aware of lies for years. Uh, as far as I was understood, that was the way the government operated. In this case, uh, I was aware that a new president, a fifth president in a row, was deceiving the public in the same way that all of his predecessors had. Nixon was continuing uh, the war, continuing to make secret threats of escalation, which I felt he would be sure to carry out. I knew he was making secret preparations to carry them out. This was the time when there were uh, uh, bombings beginning in Cambodia. Well, the, I was aware, in fact, <laughs> by the fall of 69, that the U.S. had been secretly bombing Cambodia since uh, the beginning, since uh, early February of 1969, and dropped hundreds of thousands of tons of bombs secretly on this country. Now, secretly is a funny word there in retrospect, because in fact, there had been a revelation by the New York Times, by Bill Beecher of the New York Times, that we were bombing Cambodia. And uh, you might think that something that was on the front page of the New York Times couldn't be described as a secret. But in fact, the day after that, the day that story appeared, the Pentagon simply denied it falsely, said, no, this is untrue, it's not happening. And in those days, before the Pentagon Papers had been revealed to the public, the public had acquired an appropriate amount of skepticism. In those days, if the White House or the Pentagon just said, this is reality, that is not, they defined what was reality, no matter what was really happening. That was a dangerous situation for democracy, and uh, I think the Pentagon Papers did help to change that. So what was it that uh, caused you to go public? Uh, the, as I was saying, the awareness of, from inside people who were working for Henry Kissinger and others, uh, that Nixon was repeating this terrible history, which had cost so many lives on both sides so far, and that the public belief that the war was about to end under Nixon was simply mistaken. Now, if I had had documents to put out on Nixon's current policies proving what I believed to be true and what turned out to be true, I would have put those out. I wouldn't have put out history. But all I had in my possession, and I didn't have to go somewhere else. I'm, I'm described often as stealing these. And I think people have the image that I uh, took the initiative to uh, get these documents illegally some way, which actually uh, perhaps I should have done if I'd had to, or, uh, but that wasn't the issue. They were in my safe, and the question was whether they should be only in my safe or whether the Senate should have them and whether the public should have them. 
fall of 69, I copied these documents, which I was not authorized to do, of course. And uh, I took them out of the Rand Corporation where I had them and copied them and gave copies to Senator Fulbright, the chairman of the Foreign Relations Senate Foreign Relations in hopes, in, a, in his assurance, that he would bring them out in hearings. But uh, he didn't do that. He was, he was intimidated, really, against doing that you know who intimidated him? Well, he asked four times uh, to get them officially from Secretary Laird of the Defense Department, who simply refused and said, I wouldn't be in the national interest. And his own staff, it's now come out, I was just reading a biography of Fulbright the other day, in fact, and learned that his own staffers, who I was working with and giving these papers to, were cautioning him that if he couldn't get them in an official way, he shouldn't take the chance because the of putting them out himself, even though he would not be breaking any law by doing so, but that the Pentagon would retaliate by uh, taking away, for example, military appropriations, uh, military aid appropriations from him and giving it to the Senate Appropriations Committee to deal with. He would he would lose jurisdiction. They would they would accuse him of uh, of uh, unpatriotic behavior of behavior of, of losing their trust, and indeed he would have lost their. take a moment and uh, say that my guest this week is Daniel Ellsberg, who made uh, public and released to the public in 1971 the Pentagon Papers. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Dan, is there anything that you regret or in retrospect would have done differently with regard to publishing the Pentagon Papers? Well, as I say, the, I, I could have taken stronger efforts when, when Fulbright didn't move immediately in 69 to get them out uh, some other way earlier. I, I, was, I kept hoping that Fulbright would bring them out as late as late 70, and it was only when I gave up on that that I gave them to the New York Times. Let me ask you, if I may... I put them out earlier in answer to your question, but I, I must say that I'm not sure they would have had as strong a political impact earlier. Let me ask you, if I may, what um, you believe the role of government officials should be when they believe that the president is making a catastrophic mistake. And the example that we have is the revelation um, of Secretary of Defense McNamara in his book that was released last year in which he said he was wrong in furthering the war in Vietnam. Should he have spoken up earlier? I think so, definitely, although simply, uh, and, and do a little more, uh, let me be more specific than say that he should have spoken up. I really asked myself what I thought he could have done, and I realized that uh, instead of lying, which he did in the most narrow, in the most explicit concrete ways to Congress over the Tonkin Gulf incidents, for example, in 64, and uh, later, again and again and again, and very specifically uh, to a Fulbright hearing in 68, investigating the Tonkin Gulf incident. Instead of that, and instead of refusing to testify to crucial Fulbright hearings, Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearings, in February of 1966, which is after, he tells us, he had become totally disillusioned in the war, he, he and Rusk refused to testify. Instead of that, he could have simply agreed to testify. And as a matter of fact, could have arranged that even if the president had uh, had strongly wanted him not to testify. Uh, 
did not do this. Uh, jump ahead if we could. Uh, the to only loyalty he owes, I think, is just terrible from a human point of view, from an American, from a democratic point of view. Uh, when the president is going off the tracks, uh, you can't afford to act as if he were a uh, German Fuhrer and uh, deserved uh, loyalty to the death. Dan, let's jump ahead if we could and, and uh, ask if Elliot Richardson, who was the Attorney General in October of 1973, uh, followed your lead when he refused to 
fire Archibald Cox, the special prosecutor who was investigating Nixon, and instead resigned. And uh, his second-in-command, William Ruckelshaus, also refused to fire Archibald Cox and resigned. And the third one down did fire Cox. Yes, the third one who did fire <laughs> was named Robert Bork, by the way, later a controversial nominee for the Supreme Court. But uh, if I believe that if Richardson had not done that, uh, of course, we wouldn't probably in the end have gotten the White House tapes, and Nixon would probably have escaped the impeachment hearings, which led him to resign. He would have stayed in office, and I believe he would have continued the war. Uh, people think the war had ended by early 73. That was not Nixon's intention. It was uh, being entangled in Watergate that uh, led him to uh, postpone renewing the bombing as he planned to do. He tells us that in his memoirs and so does Kissinger. And the war was going to continue in the air indefinitely uh, as far as he was concerned and at least till the end of his term. So I think that Richardson's correct action and patriotic, conscientious and courageous action uh, and that of Ruckelshaus was essential to uh, ending the war a couple of years earlier than and perhaps much more than that, than it otherwise would have. Uh, it should be taken as a kind of standard. Now, obviously, there were, there were great differences between what he did and what I did. But in both cases, it amounted to, uh, in a broader category, of saying no to the president. And in circumstances where others would not have done so, where he had not done so earlier, when he should have, perhaps, uh, at various times. But he finally found the... the uh, right and the strength to uh, to do that and um, that said i think a very important example for others let's uh, address if we may what you see the authority of Congress to be in banning these kinds of covert operations, be they in Cambodia or parts of uh, uh, Vietnam or the other portions that you delineated in the Pentagon Papers or forward now into our time in uh, Serbia and Nicaragua? Well, there's a broader question. You mentioned covert operations. There's the, there's the broader question of... Uh, whether the Constitution should be followed in um, giving Congress the really exclusive power to declare war, and, and their intent of the founders of Congress was to give Congress the exclusive power, not the president, not shared with the president, to get us into something that could probably be called war, as opposed to a retaliation for an immediate, or a uh, defense of our forces in a very immediate tactical situation where they might be attacked, or a raid, or something like that. But the founders of our Constitution, I think, very wisely felt that uh, we would be protected from unnecessary or wrongful wars much better if that decision rested not in the hands of a single powerful executive uh, leader, but in the hands of uh, Congress. And we've gotten totally away from that. There have been moves, and with some limited success, but only limited success, for Congress to regain some of that power.
U.S. operations. He wants to tell the world they're not happening, or if they are happening, uh, that he that the U.S. has nothing to do with them. And if that is discovered, he wants to be able to deny plausibly that he personally was in control of them. He wants to blame it on some underling or a rogue, a rogue elephant, something like that, which is the function of the CIA to take the blame for secret actions that the president has ordered and to carry out those actions. But if they're discovered to take the blame for them, uh, should there be such actions in a democracy? I would say no. That subverts uh, whatever convenience they may have. Of course they can work. Of course they can be effective. In some cases they can be convenient. But to operate in that way is the negation of democracy. You can't have accountability. You can't have popular sovereignty when uh, the nation is, is carrying out or actions are being carried out by officials that are carefully, secretly uh, prepared in such a way that you can't find out who ordered them or whether they're really happening or what's going on. There can't possibly be any accountability for such actions. So I think if you want to have a democracy, and we, we should want to keep a democracy, I believe, for, not just for sentimental or traditional reasons, but because it really is the best form or the, the least bad form of government, as Churchill put it. And uh, it does protect us from, uh, as the founders of the Constitution hoped and planned, it does protect us better than any other system from the worst thing that can happen to a country, and that is uh, an unnecessary or wrongful war. So um, I, I think that Congress should act against such covert operations, but I have to say they are not doing so. They have been on the whole co-opted by, uh, bought out basically by the executive branch, by letting certain members of Congress and intelligence committees in on this heady um, uh, brew of secrets. Uh, they're intoxicated by secrets and by covert actions, just as the executive is. They're flattered. It's, uh, it's even better than sleeping in the Lincoln bedroom to be told the <laughs> criminal and, uh, you know, uh, really deadly, lethal James Bond actions that uh, they can participate in making it very exciting stuff and, and makes them feel very important and um, gets the adrenaline flowing. And it well, makes them feel uh, very much of an elite, which, in effect, they are. And it's a dangerous, a dangerous uh, kind of dope to be addicting Congress to, a secret dope, inside dope. Well, Daniel Ellsberg, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, uh, I'd like to ask you the question I ask all of my guests at this time. And that is, could you please tell us of an interesting book that you've read lately? <laughs> well, I wasn't ready for that. It so happens that I, oh yes, I, I can do that very well. I read yesterday, uh, in one day, David Harris's uh, Our War what we did in Vietnam and what it did to us, and I can recommend that to everyone. It's, a, it's a, the best book I've seen on Vietnam, and it addresses it as a moral issue and reminds us of the uh, evil that was done in our name. Well, Daniel Ellsberg, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you. The Pentagon Papers were made public by Daniel Ellsberg in June 1971 and published on the front page of the New York Times. Daniel Ellsberg was subsequently criminally charged in the United States District Court in Los Angeles. Those charges were dismissed. 
The book which Daniel Ellsberg recommends is Our War by David Harris. This program was originally broadcast in March 1997. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.